Well, we pick up our study today of John's Gospel in chapter 2, where John records Jesus' first miracle. And let me tell you, this miracle is really weird. Jesus does not do this miracle in front of a whole lot of people, though a whole lot of people benefit from it. He does not heal a sick person. He does not save someone from dying. He keeps the bar stocked at a wedding. That's what Jesus is doing. That may be a crass way of putting it, and yet he is providing drink at this wedding in abundance when it had run out. And we may have heard this story before growing up or throughout our lives and faith, but we may not have stopped and asked, like, what's the deal? Like, that's nice, I guess, Jesus, but what is going on? It is an odd passage that leaves us wanting answers to quite a few questions that we may have. But like Jesus himself often does, John presents this story in such a way not to answer our questions, but to make us ask the right questions, pointing us to Jesus and how this miracle manifests his glory. And so if you don't have it open already, I'd encourage you to open your Bibles to John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. You may use your bulletins. We have the text printed out in full. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. We are told this happens just a few days after he had called his first disciples and had them follow him. The passages we looked at the last few weeks, and so this is picking up pretty quickly after where they left off. So John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of feast, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there for a few days. Amen. Let us pray. 
O Lord, we give thanks for Your Word. We thank You, O God, that You speak to us, that You reveal to us the very words that You want us to know, that You have given it to us now in our language, that we are able to understand it freely. And so, God, we pray that You would please speak through Your Word today. That by Your Spirit, You would make this Word effective for salvation and for our growth as believers. I pray, O Lord, that You would use me in spite of my sin, in spite of my weaknesses, O God, to faithfully and clearly proclaim Your Word, that we would understand it, and that You would give us open ears to receive it, open hearts and minds, that Your Word would work in us by the power of the Spirit, and that You, O God, would be glorified as we read how Jesus manifested His glory in His first sign today. In Jesus' name, Amen. Looking at our passage this morning, John tells us that this is the first of the signs that Jesus did. He does not call it a miracle, he calls it a sign. And so, that means it signifies something about Jesus. That we are pointed beyond the miracle itself to Jesus and what he was sent to accomplish. But since it is so early in Jesus' ministry, the implications are a bit more hidden than some of his later miracles and signs. And so I want us to look at three ways this passage calls us to look to Christ as our Savior. I want us to see how it calls us to humble trust in Jesus. We see that in Mary. I want us to see how it calls us to receive the abundant grace of Jesus. We see that in the Master of the Feast. And I want us to see how it calls us to find our ultimate joy in Christ. And we see that in particular in the wine itself. So the first interaction I want us to look at here in the passage is between Jesus and his mother, Mary. That they are attending a wedding with the disciples that Jesus had called to follow him a few days prior. Now, this wedding is likely the wedding of a family friend, since they have all been invited. It is very possible that Mary was involved in some of the planning or the catering, since she seems to be active with the servants, though we cannot be sure exactly what her role might be. All we are really told is that the wine ran out. And that this would be an embarrassment for the groom and all involved as they would be expected to have enough food and drink for all the guests for many days. That weddings could be roughly a week long. It's a big wedding. And so with the wine running out, the joy of new marriage would give way to shame and murmuring among the guests. The memory of this festive occasion would forever be tainted by the insufficient supply of wine. It makes me try and think, how would this work for us today? It makes me think of inviting a whole bunch of people over to your house for a barbecue. And you've got your gas grill all set up, you've marinated your meat, and you throw it on, and within 90 seconds your propane runs out. And you have no way to get more. And you've got pretty much raw meat and lots of hungry guests and you're stuck. And you would be remembered as the barbecue disaster. That's kind of what's going on here. And so Mary initiates a conversation with Jesus that is short 
unbearably short and yet full of subtext. Mary says to Jesus, they have no wine. Now, this could merely be an observation of a sad fact. But the response from Jesus makes it clear that Mary wanted him to do something to fix the problem. But Jesus had not yet done any miracles. So she probably was not expecting him to do anything miraculous. Most likely, she was expecting Jesus to step in and play peacemaker between the embarrassed hosts, the devastated bride and groom, and all of the offended guests. Jesus, would you smooth things over? We know you're good at that. Something like that. And then Jesus responds to his mother by saying, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And the word woman is meant to draw our attention, not because it is demeaning, like, woman, get over here. It's not that. It's not demeaning, it is distancing. Instead of calling Mary his mother, saying, mother, what does this have to do with me? He calls her woman, as if he were addressing any other woman in the world and calling her ma'am. Ma'am, what does this have to do with me? Having begun his public ministry, Jesus no longer primarily identifies as Mary's son. He is now his heavenly father's son who is sent on a mission. A mission that has now truly begun in force. See, Mary had likely been a widow for some time and she had been used to relying on her oldest son. And she would likely order him around and expect him to obey as any devoted son would. But things had changed with Jesus' baptism. D.A. Carson, a commentator, writes that Mary could no longer view him as other mothers viewed their sons. She must no longer be allowed the prerogatives of motherhood. She, like every other person, must come to him as to the promised Messiah. Now, this does not mean Jesus abandons her. We see in verse 12 that Jesus travels with his mother and his brothers, as well as his disciples, to Capernaum. To abandon his mother would be to break the fifth commandment, especially her as a widow now. But above honoring Mary, Jesus must obey his heavenly Father's will. That all of his actions must point to his coming glorification on the cross. We see that when he talks about his hour. That every single time in the Gospel of John where the hour is mentioned, it refers to his death. And that even now at this wedding, about three years ahead of time, he is thinking already about his death. Okay. But then Jesus helps. He seems to say no, But then why does he help? Well, Jesus only helps after Mary has shifted from a position of ordering to obedience. Mary does not take offense at what Jesus said and silently mourn the loss of this relationship. She goes to the servants and tells them, 
Listen to him. He's the boss now. Do whatever he tells you to do. Implied in that phrase, do whatever he tells you to do, is he may tell you to do nothing. And I'm okay with that. If he chooses to do nothing, we will live with that. She humbles herself before Jesus, trusting he will act as he sees best. And so Mary shows us the way of humble faith in this passage. Instead of trying to tell Jesus, here's what you need to do to fix this problem. She humbly leaves the problem in his hands, knowing he will determine what is best. And in this way, Mary parallels that Canaanite woman from Matthew 15, our New Testament reading, that they were both initially rebuked by Jesus. And the Canaanite woman humbled herself, trusted in Jesus' mercy and compassion that he would help those in need. And that's what Mary did. These two women call us to forsake any notion that we can order God to act at our command, to act on our schedule. And they call us to humble ourselves, to trust that nothing in us can compel Christ to act on our behalf. It is only His compassion, His faithful love that will move Him to help us in our need. So Mary calls us to this humble trust in Jesus. So having seen that, let us turn our attention to the master of the feast. Because just as the conversation between Mary and Jesus makes us scratch our heads, so also the master of the feast acts strangely. Now the master of the feast would have been something like the wedding planner or chief caterer. He would have been the highest ranking servant coordinating the festivities on behalf of the groom who would put on the wedding. And of all people, the master of the feast would be most to blame and most embarrassed from the wine shortage. So why does he seem so upset that his wedding has been saved from disaster? Why don't we read about him asking the servants, where did you get this excellent wine from? Why is that not in here? Why don't we read about him then seeking out Jesus and thanking him? Thank you for this bountiful provision of wine that has saved this wedding. What's this guy's deal? After the servants bring him the water that was turned into wine by Jesus, he goes and speaks to the groom. And he essentially scolds the groom for committing a catering faux pas. That everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. He confesses that Jesus' wine is clearly better than what was initially provided. And he's upset that you would provide that second that it would be wasted on guests whose palates may have been somewhat dulled, let's say, from the earlier wine that they had had. And he's upset. The master of the feast is focused on improper procedure and lavish waste. He cannot see how this good wine has extended and intensified the joyful celebration of the wedding guests. 
He cannot see how this gift of Jesus saved him and the groom from embarrassment. He bristles at the fact that his own salvation is out of his control and not according to his plans. We see that the master of the feast is unwilling to receive abundant grace. An amazing gift has fallen into his lap, and instead of being thankful, he is upset. And note, he is not upset because he has been shown up. It is not like Jesus is the guy who shows up at a party with a $150 bottle of wine, and everyone else has a nice box of wine over here. He's like, oh, geez, that guy. No, no, no. They were out of wine. None. They had nothing. Anything he would have brought would have been good. He has not been shown up. He has been saved. His very real need that he had no way of meeting has been abundantly met through Jesus. And from what we can tell, the master of the feast is upset about it. This shows us that receiving grace is hard. It is hard. We do not like to admit when we need help. Whether we are in financial need, whether we are lost and need directions, whether we have physical limitations due to age or injury, we don't like to feel weak and helpless. But in order to be saved by Jesus, we have to admit our weakness. We must confess our inability to save ourselves from the peril of sin. Because the only way to be saved is not to work off our debt. It is not to negotiate terms of peace. We must freely and open-handedly say, I can do nothing. And we must receive the abundant grace Jesus provides through His death and resurrection. The Master of the Feast shows us how hard that is. So having learned from Mary... Having learned from the master of the feast, it seems like we should probably talk about like the actual miracle that happened, you know? What should we learn from the fact that Jesus turned water into wine? Well, as we saw in our Old Testament reading from Psalm 104, God has given wine to gladden the hearts of men and women. That though wine can symbolize drunkenness, it can symbolize his wrath, certainly it does not mean those things here. It is seen as a symbol of joy and feasting. And we should see this wine symbolizing the greater joy that Jesus brings. That Jesus brings greater joy than the world can provide. Some people do like to drink simply to get drunk. To enjoy the pleasure of inebriation. And that's what our passage from Proverbs 23 addressed. The world's pleasures are a lot like getting drunk on alcohol. You enjoy the pleasure, but it is fleeting and disorientating. It soon passes and it leaves us feeling sick and empty, yet searching for more. The earthly wine of this wedding ran out just as all earthly pleasures run out. They fail to fully satisfy. But Jesus brings joy that is both better and lasts forever. 
we see that Jesus provides wine of better quality and quantity. He comes to give us joy in this life as well as eternal joy in the life to come. That the joy that Christ brings will never run dry for He is capable of bringing joy where there seems no hope of joy. That without this wed- without Jesus, this wedding would have ended in an embarrassment. But with Him there is joy. And so similarly, we may be in this world going through the troubles that we face. There are a lot of troubles in this world. Suffering, sickness, death, brokenness. It may lead us to think there is no hope of joy for us in this life. But Christ supplies us with joy in abundance through the Holy Spirit, helping us to rejoice in His love. He fills us with joy that only He can bring. And so Jesus brings greater joy than the world could ever provide. But Jesus also brings greater joy than man-made religious practices can bring. Because it is not just the pleasure seekers of the world that lack joy, it is also the stodgy, joyless religion of the Pharisees and other people who legalistically slave away at serving God. It is no coincidence that Jesus used jars designed for purification to hold his wine. That these massive jars would be filled with water for people to wash themselves as an external sign of their sinfulness. These cleansings were above and beyond the call of God's law. They were inventions of man to make them feel like I can do something about my sin. But Jesus takes these giant jars symbolizing how much sin we have to wash away and turns them into big barrels of joy. Colored like his blood, which was shed so that our sins could truly be forgiven. Jesus came to do away with our feeble and vain attempts at our own purification. He came to save us in a way so that we could truly rejoice. Instead of simply enslaving ourselves to ritual after ritual after ritual. See, Jesus infuses our worship and our religious practices with such great joy because we are celebrating what He has done instead of calculating what we must do for Him. And that gives us great joy. The joy that Jesus brings to this wedding by extending the celebration is a sign and it points us forward to the wedding feast that will last for eternity. That the same John who wrote this gospel wrote Revelation. And in chapter 19, he speaks of the wedding supper of the Lamb, where Christ the Lamb will celebrate his union with his bride, which is the church. Jesus told his mother, my hour has not yet come, that this wedding feast in Cana is not yet that great feast that is promised, but it points forward to that feast. For the wedding feast of the Lamb was not possible at that time. Because in order for that feast, the bride needs to make herself ready to be holy and spotless. And the church is incapable of making herself ready in any other way than asking Jesus to cleanse us of our sin, of being washed in His blood and covered in His perfect righteousness. 
And that only those who humbly trust in Christ, who gladly receive His abundant grace, will be filled with joy for all eternity. Brothers and sisters, this life is not one that is always full of feasting and pleasure. We will have many hard days of suffering. We will have days when we are embarrassed because of our sin. But in Jesus, we can rejoice now, knowing that all of our suffering, all of our sin, will be taken away one day soon on the great wedding feast of the Lamb. And so if you would, would you save the date for that wedding for me? I don't know exactly what date it's going to be, so I can't put it on your calendar. But would you at least save the date and plan on being there? Would you plan on coming to that wedding where the wine will flow in abundance, where joy will be overflowing, where the celebration will never end, where Christ will return and invite all of those who trust in Him to this feast? Because as the master of the feast said, you have saved the best for last. Brothers and sisters, the best is yet to come. Let us long for that feast and enjoy that joy now. Let us pray. Oh God, we give thanks. We give thanks for Christ and the joy He brings us. We give thanks that all of our celebrations in this life, whether it is birthdays or weddings or Mother's Day dinners or blowing bubbles in the backyard, whatever it may be, they are just shadows and appetizers of the great feast to come. But even here, At worship, it is a shadow of what is to come. Even around the Lord's table, it is a picture of what is to come. That we long for the day of that great wedding supper of the Lamb. Where we will know that we are washed clean in His blood. And so God, I pray that You would help us to trust in You. Break down the pride that makes us unwilling to receive the abundant grace of Christ. And help us to humbly trust in You instead of trying to order You around. Help us to find joy in You. Shine that light of joy into our lives, even when we are suffering, that we can rejoice that the best is yet to come. May we long and hunger and thirst for that day. In Jesus' name, amen.